This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today we are interviewing the superintendent of Voyagers National Park, Bob DeGrosse, way up north in Minnesota at the border with Canada. Bob is a graduate of Fox Valley College where he uh, studied forestry and natural resource management. In 1989, he got his first job with the National Park Service, and over his career, he's worked in Mammoth uh, Caves, Everglades down in uh, Florida, and came to Voyageurs in 2016. So welcome, Bob. It's great to be talking with you, and uh, hope you're not freezing yet up there in northern Minnesota. No, not yet. Thank you very much for contacting me, and it's the tail end of our summer right now, but there are there have been some fall-like con- conditions. It's interesting. I know about five hours to the south of us in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, they're having heat uh, extreme heat conditions up right. in the 90s, and up here our high has been uh, today and yesterday in the 60s, actually. So oh, wow. Interesting, yeah. So you've been there since 2016. Did you apply for the position at Voyagers, or what attracted you to Voyagers National Park? Yeah, prior to coming up here, I was in South Florida for 23 years, and I was the chief of the last position in South Florida I had before coming here. I was the chief of interpretation at Big Cypress National Preserve, and then this superintendency opportunity at Voyagers National Park came open. And yeah, I applied for the position and was able to um, uh, compete for it and was offered the position. Um, The main interest that I have, I'm originally from west central Wisconsin, Uh uh, so I'm from the northern midwestern area. And I've always had a deep connection to um, the northern parks, even though I didn't work in them. I grew up reading um, Aldo Leopold and Sigurd Olsen. Uh-huh. And so I always really had an interest in sometime, at some point, getting to someplace like Pictured Rocks or Isle Royale, Apostle Islands, uh-huh. or Voyagers. So when I saw this position open, I was very excited, and I was pleased that I competed well for so it. So you were already familiar with cold country after living in Florida? I was, yeah. Being from west-central Wisconsin, uh-huh. growing up here in the upper Midwest, um, I was familiar with it, and I'm surprised how quickly I reacclimated to it, actually. Oh, very great. So what's the primary mission of the ranger staff at Voyagers? Well, the primary purpose of the park is to protect a viewshed similar to that that the Voyagers would have experienced as they traveled through this area in the late 1600s, 1700s, and into the 1800s. Mm-hmm. As they traveled along the water highways of the lakes and streams of uh, northeastern Minnesota and northwestern Ontario, using a lot of the um, knowledge that was imparted to them by the Ojibwe and Cree, and eventually the Métis in the area, to um, seek the furs of 
whatever fur-bearing animals, primarily beavers, though. Mm-hmm. So the the primary mission is to really maintain that view shed um, of the waterways and woods of northeastern Minnesota and northwestern Ontario. But, of course, here on the northeastern side, uh, Minnesota side. Oh, yeah. How large a staff do you have? The staff here, um, we have about 45 permanent staff at oh, really? the park. Wow. And our seasonal staff pretty much doubles that. We bring in an additional 45 to 50 seasonal seasonals, um, interns and volunteers. The park is 218,000 acres, um, 40% of which is water. And it is truly a park where to really get the experience, it's important to try to get out onto the water. Um, we do have large lakes here. Matter of fact, the uh, four large lakes that we have are Rainy, Captogama, Namakin, and Sandpoint Lakes. And so those lakes are large enough to where powerboats are used quite regularly and are, are a good tool. But we also have paddle, ac- paddle access, too, and a lot of people come up to canoe and kayak the, the right. waters as well. Yeah, that's what I think of as uh, voyagers, uh, people carrying their canoes, portaging from lake to lake. Yeah, and just to the east of us, as a matter of fact, our eastern boundary is the western boundary of the Boundary Water Canoe Area Wilderness within the Superior National Forest uh-huh. to the east of us. And those are much smaller lakes that are easier to paddle across. But as you come down the watershed, of course, the lakes become larger. And so though it's possible to canoe the lakes and waters of voyagers, it's challenging because of the size of the lakes. And does your staff actively patrol the entire park area? Yeah, and our staff is broken up or made up of five different function areas. Of course, we have the business administrative side. And then we have the law enforcement program, which their main focus is to protect visitors and and protect resources. They also have the fire management team in their function. And then we have natural and cultural resources, education and interpretation, and then our facilities, which is taking care of roads and trails and buildings and utilities. And so, yeah, there's always park staff during the weekdays, especially traveling through the waters of the park to go out and accomplish whatever tasks they're focused on for the day. Yeah. Do you have stations uh, elsewhere in the park other than right at Indianapolis Falls? Yeah, so we have four gateway communities to the park. International Falls, which is in the northwest end of the park. And then we also have Cabtogama and Ash River and Crane Lake. Those are the four gateways to the park, and each of them is a small resort community. International Falls being the largest, which is about 6,000 to 7,000 people. Cabtogama, Ash River, and Crane Lake are smaller communities, but truly resort communities. Many more amenities available during the summer months, but they also have some resorts that are open in the winter months as well for people who like coming up. We do have snowmobiling in the park, cross-country skiing, um, uh, snowshoeing, and winter camping opportunities. Are any indigenous uh, people or tribes involved in park activities? Well, we have 16 affiliated nations um, on the U.S. side that are closely associated to the lands and waters of Voyagers National Park. 
the primary affiliated nation that we work with is the Boyce Fort Band of Ojibwe in Minnesota, and they're the closest geographically. We also have about five First Nations on the Canadian side that are very closely associated to the waters and, and lands of the park as well. So we do work with them very closely, do consultation, discuss with them the different projects that are taking place. We've not yet entered into shared stewardship agreements with any of those nations, but we have been having conversations. And of course, the Boys Fort Band, being the most closely geographically located, are the primary nation that we have those discussions with. And what do what do those indigenous uh, tribes? What's their what's their activity? Uh, do they fish the lakes, or uh, they do guided trips, or what? Again, um, they they're a little bit further to the south of us, so they do a lot of activities on other lakes um, in northeastern Minnesota, and of course some of the tribal members also come to the lakes at Voyagers National Park. One of the biggest, most culturally significant connections to the waters of northeastern Minnesota is the collection of monoman or wild rice, which is so culturally significant mm-hmm. to the Ojibwe in the area. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, they originally originated from eastern portions of North America and eventually traveled the waters to get to northeastern Minnesota, northern Wisconsin, Michigan, and northwest Ontario. And as they were doing that, um, you know, their culture, uh, the stories were that they should stop where the food grows on the water or the wild rice is uh, prevalent, like in northeastern Minnesota. They also fish. They do fishing and then not in the park because hunting isn't uh, done in the park, but in other areas closely associated to the park, there is they do uh, they do hunt. Yes. So uh, the international border runs down the center of the lakes. Uh, what kind of problems uh, does that create? So yeah, about our northern border of the park <clears throat> is uh, basically the international border between the United States and Canada. And so we, uh, it extends for about a 70-mile distance from the northwestern end of the park to the southeastern end of the park. There's not a lot of problems that are created with that. Of course, uh, Customs and Border Patrol is active in the area because it is an international border, and they deal mostly with those types of um, uh the the laws and regulations associated with border crossings and things like that. It is unique in the fact that the the border here is such a a watery border um, that many people are crossing uh, the lakes in different areas. Now, uh, for safe uh, boating, it is okay to cross that border with no problems at all as long as you don't go across that border and touch land in any manner. So many of the fishermen here do what we call uh, what we call looping, where they might start off in the American waters and then they might go up into the Canadian waters. And as long as they're following Canadian fishing regulations, can fish. And as long as they do not touch land in any manner, they can come back into the United States waters without having to register with Canadian customs and register back with American customs. Is there a problem of illegal crossing? 
No, not in this area, and that's, I think, uh, well, I'm sure there's some, but it's not prevalent, and part of it is because of the fact that it is such a watery uh, border, and any type of crossing would require uh, a boat and everything like that. So So are the majority of the visitors uh, people who come up to camp uh, and uh, canoe on the lake? Yeah, um, so our visitation is estimated to be about 260,000 people a year. So we are one of the um, less visited parks, and I, I think that might be because of the requirement for water access. I would say a good amount of our visitation is are people who are coming up and specifically wanting to go camping and have overnight experiences out in the park. Or maybe they're staying at a resort at one of the gateway communities and they're coming up to explore and go fishing and things like that. And then uh, another portion of our visitation, uh, and it's hard to uh, guess numbers right off the top of my head here, but a number a number of visitors are coming up and are just wanting to get the experience of voyagers, but maybe not they're not as prepared because they don't have their own boat. And so they go out on one of our tour boat opportunities that we have, either with our commercial operators that operate in the park or the park service also operates larger tour boats. And so that gives people who don't have a boat the opportunity to get out away from the shoreline and see what Voyagers is uh, is like from the water. Is fishing a main attraction? Fishing is the main attraction here. Yeah, and uh, most of the species, or the most uh, sought-after species, is walleye, um, northern pike, uh, certain times of year crappie, and then um, smallmouth bass is popular as well. So what are, what other kinds of wildlife are found in the park? One of the unique things about Voyagers National Park, from my perspective, is that we are the only national park area in the continental United States that... Um, we did not reintroduce wolves here. We've always had a strong population of wolves in northeastern Minnesota and everything. And so wolves are one of our top um, keystone species. We also have moose and bear, uh, fisher, marten, lynx. And then um, we are eagle nirvana, basically, just because of the waters of the park. Eagles are just really drawn to this area and everything. And you have beaver, uh, are there beaver oh, dams or structures that are... Yeah, beaver Beaver are a very large keystone species as well. And of course, a species that is tied to the entire story of the park, basically, with the fact that the park was established to maintain the viewshed of uh, what the voyagers would have seen uh, both the French voyagers and the English voyagers, and eventually what became the American voyagers, as they traveled through the area seeking pelts. And again, the primary pelt was the beaver pelt. Beavers have a great impact on the area. Matter of fact, one of the things that we're finding is that the engineering of beavers by damming up streams and things like that, and eventually creating small ponds that maybe they'll abandon that will eventually become immersive um, wetlands. Um, they're a big control in trying to, in staving off wildfires, actually. 
Are, are any of those species problematic or are any in decline? Are the populations stable? Thankfully, our moose population here at the park is stable, but region-wide around the park, the moose population is in decline. And that's one of the populations that we're watching very closely. As a matter of fact, we're working very closely with the U.S. Forest Service, the Minnesota DNR, and the um, Grand Portage, Fond du Lac, and Boys Fort Bands of Ojibwe to really look and see what is going on with the the moose population and how is it going to be impacted in the future, especially with changes due to climate change and things like that. So moose is one that we're very interested in. Lynx, of course, is another northern boreal species that we've seen the populations start to decline. And then bats. We're on the very northern edge. A lot of the range for species like the long-eared bats. And as we know, bats are greatly impacted because of white-nose syndrome and things like that. So unfortunately, we're seeing different species decline with bats and things. So, uh, Moose swim from island to island, don't they? They do, yeah. And then, of course, a lot of their movement is during the winter time when the lakes are frozen and everything. As a matter of fact, one of the more unique opportunities here is to um, go out on the frozen lake surfaces during the depths of the winter in like January and February. And I think one of the neatest opportunities is maybe to come along as you're either cross-country skiing, snowmobiling, or snowshoeing and maybe come across a, a wolf kill on the frozen lake surface. Mm-hmm. Or if you're out around dusk and into the night, maybe hear wolves calling in the distance. So the wolf population is stable. What's the wolf interaction with other animals? The wolf population here in northeastern Minnesota is stable and actually um, increasing some. And obviously they're a top predator, so they do have an impact on some of our different grazing animals or browsing animals like deer and moose and and different things like that. One of the interesting things is that we've seen that the wolves actually, we have footage because of different research projects that are taking place, that the wolves during different times of the year will will actually fish and um, take suckers that are coming up small streams that are spawning. And um, during the wintertime have actually evolved to uh, really depend upon beaver as they're popping up out of uh, breathing holes or near breathing holes in frozen over uh, beaver ponds and things. So. Do you have any idea what the population numbers are for wolves? I don't know the number right off the top of my head, but I do know that typically we have about six to seven packs that are associated with the lands of the park. And those packs usually tend to be about four to six individuals in a pack and everything. Are these wolves uh, considered a subspecies or are they uh, genetically identical to wolves that you find in the Rocky Mountains? They are considered to be the gray wolf or the timber wolf. I don't know that they're considered to be a subspecies of the larger wolf population, but I do know that because of the disconnection between the different populations that are found in the upper Midwest and the Rockies and different things like that, historically those populations would have probably intermingled along the edges, and now 
that's not possible because of the lack of population between the upper Midwest right. and the Rockies and right. things. You know, there's that gap in the uh, northern Dakotas, uh, or the Dakotas, I should say, and things okay. like that. And then there are red squirrels in the in the park. I think you feature them on your website. Talk about the red squirrels. Oh, yeah. When you're out camping, you definitely get a lot of interaction with the squirrels and things like that. Just the dense northern boreal forest is definitely something uh, or a habitat that they thrive in and things. So definitely see them quite often. Are you dealing with climate change there? Yeah, last year we saw, in my opinion, the direct effects of climate change and the fact that we saw the worst flood ever recorded on the waters here in the park. The previous worst flood was in the 1950s, and we exceeded the level of that flood and everything. So I know one of the things that I'm very interested in is, you know, with the climatic changes that we're seeing, are we going to see floods and severe floods more frequently? And then it's interesting, I was waking up this morning thinking of our interview, and I was thinking back, you know, the last four years, we have not seen a normal climatic cycle here at the park. This year, we are seeing drought conditions. Last year, we saw severe flood conditions. And then prior to that flood year, we saw two years of severe drought conditions again. Another thing related to climate change that I'm always interested in is, are we going to see the typical... Uh, winter freeze cycles that we have. You know, a lot of the resorts here really depend upon ice fishing and things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, if we don't see the typical freeze cycles and we don't have the decent ice cover that we tend to see, how is that going to impact access and also travel of wildlife and things? So, I assume the flooding is a result of heavy rains that occur and then you experienced drought. Last year, uh, it was a, a trifecta and just a perfect storm. What happened, in my opinion, was we had a very deep freeze and a decent snow cover, and the cold really persisted into April. And then what happened is, on top of that frozen ground with some decent snow cover, uh, in April and May, actually March, April and May, we saw extreme rain events. Matter of fact, in that time period that we typically, I believe, see about five inches of rain, I think we saw close to 15 inches of rain. Wow. So you had all that rain on top of the frozen ground, melting the snow on top of that, and that water had nowhere to go except for rushing in to the lakes and rivers and streams that make up the Rainy River watershed. So did you say you're currently in drought or do you just periodically experience drought? We were early on in the year um, see, seeing drought conditions. Um, and now here, since about early August, late July, we finally have moved out of that for our area where oh. we're at. Mm -hmm. So I gather then fire is not a particular concern or uh, when you have drought periods? Is it a concern? It is a concern. And thankfully, this year, even with the drought conditions that we've seen, we only had two lightning strikes. Unfortunately, we are not able to let those naturally started fires burn 
because what we're finding is the time that we would typically burn is the time when the rest of the country is in severity. Mm -hmm. And to minimize the stress on the availability of staffing, we have been, over the last few years, been doing initial attack to put those fires out rather than letting them burn because um, there's just not enough firefighters available to bring here and to also focus on the extreme fires that are happening out west. So have you noticed any effects of uh, climate change on on wildlife? I think that it's primarily one of the big things, and this is, of course, many years down the road, is that eventually this area, if climate change continues, which we all anticipate that it likely will, unless there's some major changes that take place, and that we may have even passed that tipping point. But eventually, this boreal forest that the park is made up of will be changing, and the vegetation types will be changing. And when those vegetation types change, uh, will that cause northern species that depend upon the boreal forest, such as moose and lynx, fishers and martens, to move further away from the area because the habitat will change and things. So So is there anything you can do to mitigate the climate change or do you just have to adapt as it changes? I think the easiest opportunity for us to try to assure that we mitigate for it and that we are resilient and sustainable is more looking at what is taking place with the drought and flood um, cycles and things like that. You know, is there resiliency that we can build into the area of recognizing that those floods might be more frequent and things? In terms of the natural world and things, I think we just really have to keep an eye on the populations and how things might be changing in response to climate change and things. So, Are there any research projects that are uh, being done in the park? Yeah, we have a variety of different research projects being done in the park. Um, one of the main things that we do is we really watch effects of water changes. One of the unique things about Voyagers is that the waters in the park are controlled by three dams, one that's located in International Falls, and two others that are located at a remote area called Kettle Falls. And so we watch very closely the impacts to a variety of different things, such as archaeological sites, wild rice stands, fish populations, erosion along shorelines and things like that, as it relates to the management of these waters and things. So that's one of the research projects that we do. We also do a lot of research in relation to water quality indices, because we are outstanding waters within the state of Minnesota. So we want to assure that our waters stay pristine in that manner. And then for wildlife, we have research related to wolves, moose, beaver, loons, and I'm trying to think of the others. Wolf, beaver, loons, moose, and those are the primary ones there. Yeah. Is there a university that uh, specializes in doing research in the park? We primarily work with the University of Minnesota, who has been doing a lot of work related to the wolves in the area. And then we also work with University of Nebraska, which 
the name of which I forget, but they've been helping us quite a bit with a wetland restoration project that we have been doing for the last five or six years in the park. And that's a project where we are going in and eradicating invasive hybridized cattails and allowing the area to regenerate with the natural emergent vegetation that is much more diverse than just the monoculture of the hybridized cattail. Well, Bob, we're just about out of time, but uh, I'd like to bring my canoe up there and uh, do some voyaging in Voyagers. Oh, definitely. Thanks very much. Yeah, and I was just speaking to your uh, I was just speaking to your son-in-law, Rich, and um, one of the things I mentioned to him is if you do get the opportunity to come to Voyagers National Park, I, and I might be biased in this, but I believe that we have the best campsites in all of the National Park Service. Awesome. So if you come up, hopefully you have the opportunity to to do an overnight stay at one of our campsites. Oh, that sounds great. Okay. Well, thanks again very much. Uh, our guest today has been Bob DeGrosse, Superintendent of Voyagers National Park up in northern Minnesota. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.